From the very beginning, I figured out right almost from day one that it wasn't about coffee. It was about people. Because of the people that I met and how they talked about the coffee and how they talked about each other. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Howard Bihar into the conversation. Howard is hailed as a hero of conscious capitalism, a passionate advocate for leading with purpose, and a devoted student and teacher of the servant leadership model. Howard served for over 21 years as president of Starbucks North America, then as founding president of Starbucks International. During his tenure, he grew Starbucks from only 28 stores to over 15,000, spanning five continents. Post-retirement, Howard has since been serving as a speaker, advisor, mentor, and best-selling author of multiple books, including the timeless classic, It's Not About the Coffee, a guide to leading by putting people first. Pull out your notepads and prepare to learn from one of the most inspiring leaders you'll ever meet. While you're at it, make sure to enjoy with your favorite cup of Starbucks coffee. It's time to welcome Howard Bihar into the Playmakers podcast. Howard, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in Seattle. Hard to believe it's October and sunny. I I, I don't even believe it, Howard. I've been there a dozen times and every single, except for the summer, I'll give you that. But every other time, it's funny what I consider a torrential downpour, y'all call a light sprinkle or a mist, a mist. Exactly. (laughs) So Howard, clearly uh, the world knows you for many reasons, but serving for decades as the president in Starbucks. And we're going to go through that entire journey. But I want to go back to yester, yesteryear. Talk to us about those earlier, more formative moments. I know there were some experiences even working at your parents' market. Just take us back to those, those childhood and younger days, because I'm sure there are some lessons and insights that started to groom you at that stage. Well, I'm the son of two immigrants. My father actually was born in 1895 left his family in Bulgaria, except he had a brother in Vancouver, British Columbia, came to the United States, and they both immigrated to Seattle. My dad actually worked at the Pike Place Market, which was then really a farmer's market, pushing a cart, and he learned the language and saved his pennies, nickels, and dimes and opened up a small mom-and-pop grocery store in the north end of Seattle. And so that was, you know, after school, I was there every day. And my mother was working, and my dad was working, and you know, you learn a lot by watching your parents work. Watch them get up at the four o'clock in the morning every day, go down to produce roll, pick up the produce, bring it back to the store, clean it all up, get it ready for sale, open a store at eight o'clock, and then he closed down every night at six o'clock. Can you imagine today closing <laughs> at six o'clock? Crazy. He'd come, he'd come home for dinner and he'd eat his dinner. I mean, like jet speed. And, and then a half hour later, I sit in his chair, sound asleep. And he was just a hard worker, but he was a guy that cared about people. You know, in those days, they weren't just his customers, but they were his friends and his neighbors. Everybody had charge accounts and and he would bill them once a month. And when they were short of cash, 
he would take care of them. Mm. And when they didn't have money to buy fruit, he would give it to them. And he used to always say to me, Howard, not everything you do in life do you need to be paid for. It's so true. And, you know, those were formative years for me. You know, this little kid, eight, nine years old, always being in that store and watching what he did. It was amazing to watch and amazing to listen to him. Yeah. And where you're bringing us, I, I love what you said about not everything that you need, that you do, you need to be paid for. You've been on Ed Milet's show before, and, and I'm yeah. a massive fan, follower of his, love it. And so I'll give him the credit for what I'm about to share, but it connects to what you just said. He says, especially as a parent, and I'm a year and a half into the journey, so I'm, I'm a rookie in this ball game. Yeah. but he has this fascinating way of putting it that we think it's all about what we teach others. And he says, especially in the parenting relationship, so many more things are caught, not taught. So yeah. we think it's a teaching game, but what I'm hearing is maybe you were taught some things such as that lesson, but what did you catch? If you say I caught it, not taught it, what did you see your parents do that to this day holds true for you? How they treated each other and how they treated the people that they served. You know, it's, it's absolutely right. They don't, didn't say Howard, here's how you treat people. I just watched what they did. I didn't, you don't realize it at the time, but it becomes formative for you and you start to act on it. You know, you kind of, you know, how something you what you walk the same as your dad you kind of or mom and speak the same. You don't even know you're doing it, but you do it. And so that became formative for me and it informed my life. You know, my, I watched my dad pay his bills, hire people, fire people, all the things that you do as a small business person. And, and that really served me well because it, it taught me what it took to run a really run a business. And that, I always thought, you know, at Starbucks, I came when there were about 28 stores and I understood how to make uh, retail work mm -hmm. economically, how to do all those things because of the lessons my, my dad showed me and, and observing him. And so at that company, Starbucks was mine just as much as it was Howard Schultz. I always felt that I owned it. It wasn't a job. It was never a job, you know, and just like my dad, it wasn't a job for him. It was his life. That's why my book says, you know, it's not about the coffee, putting people first from a life at Starbucks, a life at Starbucks, not a job at Starbucks. I love that because you always hear the term. And by the way, I'll, I'll preface it by saying I don't agree with this terminology of work life balance, because yeah. the reality is that quantifies it. It makes it feel like a ledger sheet and they need to balance out. And I've crunched the numbers, Howard, and I'm sure you have, too. The average person in America works over 100,000 hours over the course of a career. Yeah. That's more than we're going to sleep, more than we're going to spend with our family, more than the yeah. Mai Tais in Hawaii, all yeah. that stuff. So I, I think of it as work-life integration. That's and that probably reinforces exactly what you said. It's not about a balance. It's about the harmony amongst the two dynamics of work and life, the integration. So if I'm a playmaker listening in, what are some insights you would have for us if we say, I want my work and life to be more integrated. I want more harmony, but maybe I'm not feeling it today. It's first of all, you have to, you have to recognize that in order to have a fulfilling life, all parts of your life fit together, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, mm -hmm. the rewarding, the, the, you know, the disappointments, all the things that go until you've experienced them all, you don't have a full life. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is all about. So I use exactly the same work. 
word. I don't believe in balance. It's integration. It's how you make them work together. So, you know, I used to take my kids on business trips. I wasn't trying to teach them about my business. I was trying to get them to understand what I did with my time. So when I was gone, they could picture in their mind's eye what was dad doing. And it wasn't dad was just gone, you know, Mm. and that made a huge difference. And when I was gone, instead of them being disappointed, I wasn't there maybe at a soccer game. They understand where I was and why I was there. And on the other hand, there were times when I, you know, I had to uh, make sure that when I committed to be at a soccer game, that I didn't care if I had a meeting or not. I was going to be at that soccer game. You know, I'd find, you know, find another time for the meeting. And so it was putting them all together, not in a way that says five hours here, five hours here, five hours here, or not, not in a way that, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of in life, you're always on mm-hmm. in all parts of your life. So if I'm in a meeting and the phone call came and my assistant said, hey, Howard, it's your son, Scott. I didn't I didn't say tell him I'll call him back because he knew not to call when, you know, unless it was something he needed, it really needed yeah. at that time. I'd pick up the phone. I would hold the meeting because my family was important. And Howard, did you did you always feel this way? Were you always, how about this better question? Were you always practicing it? If I were to go to the earliest stages of your career, were you practicing that consistently or did you just eventually grow mature? And, and those types of decisions were more common mid, mid to late career. Yeah. No, I didn't practice it in yeah. the early days. No. In the early days, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to score touchdowns every day, you know, <laughs> and, and you learn after a while in life, you don't score touchdowns. Sometimes mm. you lose five yards. You know, amen. Yeah, I, I've been caught in that touchdown game so many times where you think it's that trophy. It's the I call it the external happiness trap. I'll be happy when dot, dot, dot. Yeah. yeah right. And, and 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 it feels accurate in that moment because you you're convinced that once you achieve a certain thing, yeah. that life is all of a sudden the sun will be brighter and warmer and all your problems and you get go the away. Trophy and two days later. You can't even remember what you got the trophy for, you know, oh. and, and you're on to the next thing, right? Because you're chasing that a next trophy. And, Absolutely. You know, and it doesn't work. The goalposts keep moving further and further yeah. away. You never, even when you score a goal, there's always yeah. another one. And so I, I think the key here, yeah, just keep moving forward. Yeah. Going back pre-Starbucks days, talk to us about from let's say college days forward, what you were educated in the earliest stages of your career leading up to the point. I want to get to the point of how you meet Howard and all that great stuff. Yeah. But before that, what, what happened professionally? Well, you're looking at a guy and talking to a guy that barely got out of high school. I had a couple of years of community college. You know, I wasn't the best student. I was a pretty good learner, but I learned better working than I did in a classroom. So I, you know, I grew up and you know, my dad's retail business and my brother, brother and brother-in-law both had furniture stores. And I worked in both of those stores and I learned the furniture business. And I wanted to have my own store and my, uh, it was during the uh, late sixties, the Boeing crisis in Seattle. And there was a billboard that was up that said, well, the last one out of Seattle, please turn off the lights. And so my dad said, it's not a good time to open a store. And so he wouldn't loan me the money. So I, I got mad and I said, okay, I'm going to leave my family's business. I'm going to go do something else. So I went to work uh, for a company called Levitt's Furniture. Yeah, I remember Levitt's. 
Yeah, and uh, the first store in Seattle, and and I learned a lot there because it was a big business. It was totally a different kind kind of thing than family's business, and I I really learned how to work there. And it was the first time I ever come face to face with a computer. It was one of those, <laughs> it, you know, it took up a whole room, and you know, you yeah. had you know, and so I learned a lot there, and I used to always talk to reps, sales reps that would come in, sell, you know, selling their goods. I said, who's the best in the furniture business? And they always a name came up, a guy named Howard Jackauer. And I said, someday I'm going to work for Howard Jackauer. Well, lo and behold, one day I get a call. Who's on the phone? Howard Jackauer. And Howard said, you know, we're opening up a competitor to Levitt's uh, with Federated Department Stores called Gold Key. I'd love to talk to you about it. So Howard Jackauer convinced me and I made a decision to go to work for Gold Key and Howard Jackauer. So here I am working for the for one of the most well-known and best in the home furnishings industry. So another opportunity to learn and to grow. Mm. Well, you know, then um, I, I had a boss that worked there. His name was Erwin Greenwald. And Erwin's about six foot four. Every day he'd come in the office and he'd look at me and say, hi, you dummy, how you doing? I'd never, nobody ever said those kind of words to me. And I, Erwin was a nice guy, but I, I couldn't stand that. One day I, he came in and he said that, and I just got up in front of him and I, I just blew up. I said, Erwin, don't ever effing say that to me again. All right. Three weeks later, I was fired. Now mm. my wife, my wife was two months away from giving birth. I didn't have a job. I had no money saved. Right. You know, I had to figure out what I was going to do. And so, you know, I started making my contacts again, and I ended up getting hired by, by a guy named Jim Jensen at a company called Grand Tree Furniture Rental. And I brought some retail experience to a rental furniture rental business. And I ran the used furniture stores. I used to call them used furniture outlets. And I, I changed the name to rental return furniture, which elevated the, the idea of it. And we opened 50 stores. And I, I went from, I, I remember he hired me. I was making 35,000 a year. And he said, I can't pay you 35,000 a year. I can pay you 18,000 a year. You know, I had to take a deep breath because, you know, not significant going in. But he said, I'll give you a piece of the action. And he said, if you can do everything you say you can do, you know, now I had opened my mouth by how good I was. He said, if you can be as good as you say you are, you're going to make a lot of money. Well, the first year I made a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, this is in the 1970s. Hundred thousand dollars was a lot of money. Yeah. Then the C the chairman of the board said, "We can't pay that guy Bihar a hundred thousand dollars. He's making way too much money. We have to change his deal." So that which really made me mad. So they changed the deal on me. The second year, I made one hundred twenty-five thousand on a change deal. And Jim was probably the most important mentor of my life. He, he taught me to believe in myself. He taught me to set, to write down and set goals, to have a plan for my life, to use affirmations to my benefit. He taught me about servant leadership and that he totally changed my life and the direction of my life. And then the rest is kind of history. I, had, I, I left that company and I went with Jim to another company and that company got sold and I was out trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I met this young guy named Howard Schultz. <laughs> All right, so let's let, let's double click on that. So Howard, 
you explain the story of what leads to that connection. And if I could ask you, because we always, before we jump on conversations like this, we had a pre-chat and I mentioned, I said, look, I'm writing a book called Better Decisions Faster. And you said, well, Paul, I think I've made some decisions in my life. And I could tell you how, even from the moment that I met Howard Schultz and it was a smaller coffee shop versus could have started my own business. So why don't you walk us through that original, not only encounter with Howard, but everything that was going through your head and heart at the time, because ultimately there was a decision, but I'm sure that time, thought, intentionality was all needed. Well, I didn't want to go to work for another company again. I grew up in small retail or or small business. That's what I was going to do. I was going to make my way. Now I'm in my early 40s at the time. And so I started looking for businesses to buy. And I'd run into two or three of them. And I finally found a business to buy. It, and along that journey, I'd met Howard. And he was looking for a VP of operations for this little coffee company called Starbucks. And we had breakfast and we sat down and he had a list of 10 things that he was looking for. He wanted somebody with a college degree. I didn't have that. Somebody with a food service background. I didn't have that. Finally, I get down to number 10. Aha, I qualify. Can you breathe? <laughs> Yes, I could breathe. But the truth of the matter is, I really didn't want to go to work. I, I just, somebody introduced me to him and we met and I didn't fit what he wanted. So we shook hands, parted company. And I finally found a business to buy, except I didn't have any money to buy this business. So the only person I knew that had money was my brother-in-law. So I went to my brother-in-law and I said, Kenny, you want, would you be willing to loan me money? And I can buy this business for one times cash flow, which mm-hmm. anybody in business know that's a great deal. Yeah, And it was because these were two friends of mine that were in the furniture business that owned the Hickory Farms franchise for Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. And so they were willing to sell it to me. And so I went to my brother-in-law and I said, I'd like to buy this. And I said, and he said, do you know anything about franchising? I said, I don't know a lot, but, but I'm learning a lot. And he said, I don't know anything about franchising. And I want to go, I want to, I want us to go talk to somebody who knows something about franchising. Happened to be a guy named Jack Rogers, who was Howard Schultz's first investor when he bought Starbucks. So we, my brother-in-law says, we got to go meet at the Starbucks building. So we go meet at the Starbucks building and I sit down in front of Jack and I'm pitching my heart out why I should be able to buy this business and why I thought it was such a good deal. And Jack looked at me and he said, what do you want to do that for? We need a guy like you right here at Starbucks. You could have heard my brother-in-law's sigh relief all the way down to California from Seattle <laughs> if he didn't have to loan me any money. My sister would be happy. Everything would be right with the world as far as he was concerned. And, and I said, well, I'd already talked to Howard about a year ago. And you know, I, I related the story. He says, yeah, we still haven't found anybody. You're perfect for this job. I want you to talk to a couple more people. And I want you to talk to Howard again. I said, okay, because I wasn't going to get it. If I, my brother-in-law wasn't going to loan me any money unless I went through these steps. So, so I met with Howard again. And I said, to, as we were talking, I said, Howard, you know, can I work in a company for a week for free? You get a look at me. I get a look at you. See at the end of that week, if you think I qualify and I'll see if it's something I want to do. And he, he, he fortunately, he bet. He said, sure. So I did. I said, I worked on the trucks for a couple of days. I worked on the roasting plant for a few days. I worked on the stores for a few days. Not everything you do in life, do you need to get paid for, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. And so, and after that first week, fortunately, Howard extended an invitation for me to join. And I said, yes, because 
from the very beginning, I figured out right almost from day one that it wasn't about coffee. It was about people because of the people that I met and how they talked about the coffee and how they talked about each other. And that's what I drove with inside the company. I joined that company. And, and from the very beginning, I get I was trying to get people to understand, yeah, coffee was important. We had to have good quality coffee. But there were a lot of people that didn't like our coffee because it was dark roasted. They weren't gonna, our coffee wasn't going to appeal to everybody. So that meant we had to be something different. We had to be the best people company in the world. And that's what we set it to be. And I coined this phrase about a month into my work there. I said, we're not in the coffee business serving people, but we're in the people business serving coffee. That is stuck to this day. So the rest is history. I spent 21 years there. I started when there were 28 stores. When I retired, there were 15,000. I was in the board of directors for 12 years, and I held varying positions. My most favorite one was founding president of Starbucks International. Let's We're going to unpack the journey in many ways, but because we were on the topic of decisions and it's so top of mind for me, if I could challenge you, one of these might be easier to answer, but I'll ask you both. Best decision you ever made at Starbucks, worst decision. Best decision I ever made at Starbucks was joining Starbucks. You know, without a question. <laughs> I mean, you know, luck is where opportunity meets preparation. So I was prepared and I got the opportunity and I made the decision to go. If I had gone the other way, you and I wouldn't have been talking here today. And so a lot of that is luck, but I made the decision and I was prepared to do the work. So that would be the best decision. And probably the next best decisions were the people that I hired. Now, I was never afraid of having people stronger than I was or that were different than I was. I didn't need mm. all blue, a, a brown hair, blue eyed or blonde, blue eyed people working for me that all thought the same. I wanted people that challenged me, that created a little tension. I like to call it tension on the line. They were always saying, well, why are we doing that? And that always made a huge difference because I got people that really cared and they felt respected because they knew I would listen. And so those were best decisions of people that I made, uh, that I hired. Worst decision I ever made in my life at, at Starbucks without uh, was always still around people, keeping somebody too long. It yeah. did a lot, that did a lot of damage within the company. And it's always people decisions. It's not product decisions. I mean, uh, how many products did we try that failed? So what? Yep. You know, if you don't poison anybody, you're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and so we, but we had lots of successes too. And so, but the, the people decisions are the things that matter because they're the ones that create the products. They're the ones that build the organization. You know, you grow the people, the people grow the organization and the organization grows the business. It's pretty much that simple. So my role as a leader was to grow the people. And they would take care of the rest. Yeah. I, I, I love it. Howard, this rings so true for me because part of better decisions faster, the how-to, the application, I call it the head, heart, hands equation. The masterclass takes less than 30 seconds. Yes. Head is your mindset. Heart is authenticity. Yep. Hands is action. Yep. In order to decide what actions to take, when to activate your hands, there's two checkpoints, your head and your heart. When they're yep. both on board, that's a green light for action. When yes. neither is on board, it's a red light don't take the action or stop taking the action if you have been. And here's the messy middle of yellow. When only one of the two, either your head or your heart is on board. And what you just said about people is this. 
your head, like, so I'm a former sales leader. I was charged with billion dollar campaigns in the NFL. A lot of my top producers were very toxic in the workplace, but I kept them because when people sell widgets, we tend to have this internal pressure. And we, like you said, sometimes we keep them too long, but I knew my heart knew not a good fit, not a long-term keeper, but you keep them because your head says yes. And I always say, those yellow lights, if you hang out in them for too long, are just as deadly as a red. Think like a person, act like a person of thought. It's the conflict in the middle. It's that middle ground that gets you. And, and it doesn't mean you're always going to be right, but you got to move. And particularly if there's what you just talked about, it's the classic mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, we put the best salesperson into a sales leader job and, mm. and they become the worst at managing a group of salespeople and you stay with it because they were so good at making sales. doesn't mean yeah. they're the sales leader and we stay too long and we destroy an organization. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, what's crazy about that, Howard. So coming from the sports world. So in the actual, I was in the sports business, but if we actually say the folks that are on the field or the court or the yeah. ice, whatever sport they play, nobody would say, well, just because you were an amazing player, we're just going to promote you to coach sports understands because you score 30 points in a basketball game. Sometimes the best coaches were role players. They barely hung on to a roster spot, but they understood the game. More importantly, they understood people. And so it's a, so in sports, we've understood that, but in player, if you're the best accountant, go supervise the accountants. You're the best marketer. You should lead the marketers we almost blur the lines of player and coach so much. Yeah. So my, my, my piece for you is a, why do you think that is? And then B at Starbucks, how did you ensure that going from player to coach had more successful, happy outcomes versus some of the horror stories that I just shared? You don't just dump them in, right? You, you give them little bits and pieces where they have to lead teams and you can see what they do and how the people respect them. And you stay with them. You coach them. Just because they go into the spot doesn't mean they're ready. When the first time I became president of a company, I wasn't ready to be president. I had to grow into it. Now, fortunately, mm-hmm. I had somebody to help me along the way and coach me along the way. And so when that person saw I was getting a little off track, they would come and say, hey, think about this. And that's what I did. And that's what you got to do. And that means sometimes it takes an inordinate amount of time and we're not willing to give that time. We want, we, Hey, I made you vice president, be a vice president. It's just not the way that it goes, you know? And so you've got to give the time that it takes to help people become all they can be. And, and sometimes they make mistakes, you know, that old adage, we're going to get along fine just as long as you don't surprise me. People are surprising (laughs) you all the time. All the time. We just don't like the surprises we don't like, but Mm. we like the surprises we do like, like that million dollar order we didn't expect, you know, but you got to get, you got to be willing to take both sides. And, but so often we, you know, we just get ahead ahead of our skis and we put somebody because it's expedient and we need somebody in the spot and we do it and they always pay a price. Hi, Playmakers. It's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes. And on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, 
open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. So good. And we're going to shift into servant leadership. It's something that you have uh, deservedly so you have major influence. You have influenced many to take on a servant's mind, a servant's heart, act with a servant's hands. So my question to you is, before we go into more of how you would define servant leadership, my guess is in some of these player to coach moves or even uh, from entry-level management into more senior ranks, let's just say, my guess is you probably were looking to see, does this person act as do they have the servant qualities? How about right. that? And so, uh, yeah, so, so feel free to run with this one, but just would love to know, A, how you would define servant leadership and B, how you could kind of sense it before maybe they were in that position that we more commonly refer to as a leader. So when I was hiring somebody new to come into Starbucks, and let's say that we're hiring a VP of accounting. I am not an accounting expert, so I would let the accountants determine whether or not they had the knowledge in accounting. But I would focus heavily on the people side. I didn't, you know, I didn't care what they knew about accounting. I wanted to know what they knew about people, what they knew. Primarily, what did they know about themselves? Who were they as a person? What were their values? I'd ask questions like, what do your parents like about you? What don't they like about you? What do your parents wish you to become versus what you've become? You have brothers or sisters? What does your brother like about you? What does your brother not like about you? What's the mm. biggest single you made mistake you made with another human being? What happened? What? How did it all turn out? And 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 how did it work out? Um, what's the most serious blunder you've ever made in, in your life? And how did it affect you? And tell me your three core values, three of your core values. And most people have a hard time with that one because people don't think about them. You know, they just are living their lives. But but I want they could just describe what values meant. So even if people that worked in the organization, the good thing about when you're promoting somebody from within an organization, you can see them in meetings. You can see them act. What you can't see is who they are once they have power. You can see it a little bit. You get glimpses of it. But some people, when immediately they get power, they say, ah, I'm I'm a vice president now. You know, I'm an important guy, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. they start to act a little differently. You know, they 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 don't want anybody giving them feedback. They just they want to be the boss, and that's yeah. when correction goes in. So, servant leadership at its core is this: that as leaders, our primary job is to help people achieve what they want out of their lives, to help them grow as human beings, to grow as professionals, and when we do that then they want to serve us. And many leaders think that that people are there to serve them. It's not true. It's the opposite of that. When we serve our people first, then they innately want to serve us. They want to serve the organization because they feel respected. They feel like they've been treated with dignity. They feel like they're valued. They feel like you care about them. They feel like you love them. They feel like you trust them. All the things that go on in a family. You have a you have a, you're a, have a, a child, right? You said yes. Okay, so I mean, the most important thing that anything ha- to create a, a good family is to have trust in the family, right? It's not love. Love is important and caring is important, but trust. 
Mm. You know, when you pick up your baby, is it a boy or girl? Boy. Boy. You know, he knows when you pick him up, he pretty much knows you aren't going to drop him, right? And hit mm-hmm. his head. If you drop him two or three times, do you think he's going to put his arms out to, to let you pick him up? Probably not. <laughs> not. Right. And it's the same way with your significant other, with your wife, your spouse, yeah. your husband, whatever. It's trust. So so servant leadership is about that, too. It's about it's it's trust that it's the trust that happens when you serve another human being first, when you help your wife get what she wants out of out of life first, before you worry about yourself, you create trust and and caring in a marriage. And it's the same with your kids. So with trust, there's always been these two philosophies. And now, based on what you said, I'm questioning if it's not an or, it's an and. So some people yeah. say that their default style is I I trust somebody until they give me a reason not to. So they default to trust from moment one. Yeah. Now, there's others that say it takes time, whether months, years, you fill in the blank, but it takes time to build trust. The way I'm hearing you, you interpret it, it's both. It's start from a place where I'm going to be positive, optimistic, hopeful that we should have trust, but then it's only going to get stronger as you act with trust. Yeah. It's like a marriage. Think about it. You fall in love, you meet somebody that's uh, handsome or pretty and they have a nice personality and you like them. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're engaged and then you get married. And that's when the journey begins. You live in it, you live in the same home, right? And you, you grow together. That's what makes a marriage work is you're growing as individuals, right? And along the way, you're creating trust with each other. You learn that you can depend on each other. And if trust gets broken, it, it, it's held to try to put it back together, depending on how the trust got broken. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not either or, it's and. You yes. trust the person you get married, you trust them, right? And then you build trust over a longer period of time. I've been married for 45 years. What's the one thing that we have, you know, is trust in each other. Trust that I'll look out for her and she'll look out for me. I wasn't planning on asking this, Howard, but because we're on the topic of trust and then we'll shift gears. If trust is broken, can it be repaired? Yes. Yeah. It depends what it is and depends. You you have to be, depending on if if somebody's broken trust with you, you got to go into forgiveness mode. Now, it depends on what, what got broken. Sure. If I'm working in a company and I had somebody steal, really steal a lot. Yeah. I mean, we can't work together. I can still love you as a human being. Mm. I can still care about you, but that trust is broken. We can't work together. Now, let's say in a marriage that somebody drifts, you can, you can repair that. It takes a lot, though. It, has, it takes a lot of work, a lot of understanding, a lot of help. And, and many times you've got to go get some coaching to be able mm. to, do, to, get, to get through it. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, trust, broken trust can be repaired. You, you, have to be able to, you have to be willing to forgive. It's interesting they use the word drift. And you, in the context, you were on the more personal side, which I love. So in my consultancy purpose point, we talk about mission drift. And so as you know, and we call them the five P's, every company starts 
with a purpose. And then they invite people to join them along for the journey. Then they start to create process and then they measure performance and hopefully they achieve a profit. And the further away you go from that foundational point, you start to prioritize the latter three Ps when in reality, there was a disconnection from that original point of purpose and the people that you invited to join you along the way. It takes all five in harmony, of course, to have a healthy and thriving business. But it's interesting because we always say the same. You could look at this as drift away from the original mission. And in this case, all we're doing is saying we're at a place of forgiveness. Now that we're aware, what are we going to do to get back reconnected to that original point of purpose? And that happened. That's exactly what happens in companies. It's, you know, every time Starbucks got in trouble, you know, where things were going wrong, it's always we lost touch with the fact it's the people that count, period. Forget that at your own peril, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of has taken a little bit now, you know, with the union issue going on at Starbucks. You know, they, you know, some, some leaders forgot it was a people. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of leaders, and then I want to talk more about the personal things that you do uh, that can apply to all playmakers as far as the daily rituals, habits, routines. I know so much about them, and I'm so excited to share that with all playmakers. Before we shift from Starbucks, so last piece here, number one lesson that you learned from Howard Schultz. Persistence pays. You got to stay with it. Uh, he, I've never known a guy more persistent than that guy. If he came into your office and he said, Howard, I got this great, great idea. I want to buy a tomato soup company. And you looked at him and he said, How, and Howard, are you nuts? Why do we want tomato soup? He would start going around the building until he found somebody that said, yeah, Howard, we should have tomato soup. And then he'd come back in your <laughs> office and say, hey, B, how are you wrong? Joe said we should have tomato soup. You know, and that's Howard. Uh, I mean, that's who he is. That From the very beginning, I mean, that's who he was. He just would stay with it. Never known, I could use that word to describe him. That's beautiful. You mentioned earlier that the key to leadership is knowing who you are. Yes. You have, you and I share that belief, but it's one thing to have the belief. It's another to support it with practices, rituals, habits, routines. So talk to us about A, how you started to, level up your own self-discovery because it it didn't happen overnight and it was not a process. Um, So how did you do it on your own? And then we'll start to share out some key insights so we can make this portable for everybody listening in. So um, when I was in my mid twenties, I was working for a company and I, I, you know, no college degree. I get promoted to vice president of merchandising. Never my wildest dreams. Did I ever think a guy without a college degree was going to get promoted to an officer of a public company. So I get this promotion. Everybody's congratulating. I'm excited. It's just unbelievable time in my life. I'm feeling good. I get a bigger paycheck. All things are, all things are go. And one day I'm standing by the elevator and this chairman of the board comes up to me and said, Howard, I know I'm not the first to congratulate you, but I want to congratulate you on a well-deserved appointment. And I said, thank you. His name was Walker. And I said, thank you, Walker. And then he said that three-letter word, but there's something I'd like to talk to you about. <laughs> so I said, yeah, Walker, what is it? Now, these are the days when the C- when the chairman of the board was talking to you or CEO was talking to you. It was like God was talking to you, you know. Mm. You know, boys were there to listen, not talk, you know, so to speak. This is in the early se- or in the early 70s. And he said, Howard, what I've noticed about you is you always wear your heart on your, sh- heart on your sleeve. Everybody knows what you're feeling all the time. 
And he said, if you want to be a great leader, you're, you're going to have to learn to control that a little bit more, not show, not show how you're feeling. And I said, yes, Walker. And, and then he said, the other thing I've noticed about you is, is you're always willing to give your opinion. And he said, great executives want to be a thought, want to be seen as, as great thinkers, that they don't just give their opinion, right? And, you know, do something like, let me think about it for a day or two and I'll get back to you. Well, you know, I wasn't that person. I was emotional. I was out there. Everybody knew where I was coming from all the time. I was always willing, if somebody asked me a question, they were going to get an answer. Whether they liked it or they didn't like it, it wasn't the point. And so here's Walker telling me this thing. So I go home that night and I said, what the hell am I going to do to my wife? I said, you know, I mean, I don't know why they promoted me. They know who I was. So I decided I, I want to be a great executive. So what do I have to do to change? So I'd start going to meetings and I'd actually, I remembered something my mother said, Howard, before you go to say anything, put your hands underneath your butt and sit on your hands to remind yourself to not say anything. Well, after a while, I looked kind of stupid. And then I, I started taking legal pads to meetings. I had this nervous little habit of tearing off the corner and making little balls, throwing them underneath the table, all in an attempt to manage my behavior. After about three months, I went from a guy that loved his job to a guy that hated his job because I was trying to be something I wasn't. And mm -hmm. I finally decided to leave the company. And I won't go through the whole story, but somebody talked me into not leaving the company. Eventually, I did. But after that experience, I said, I'm never going through that again. The problem was, it wasn't with Walker. The problem was with me. I did, I did not have the confidence or the ability to have the conversation with Walker to say, Walker, you're not asking me to change the color of my slacks. You're asking me to change who I am. Yeah. Okay. And because I didn't really know who I was. I, I never thought about what my values were. I was just Howard being Howard. Mm -hmm. I, do, I, I like to say Howie being Howie. <laughs> I hadn't become Howard yet. Mm. And so I went on that journey of self-discovery, of figuring out what my core values were, what my personal mission was in life, and how I wanted to live my life. And I have it, it's sitting right here in front, on, on the wall in front of me right now. It's my core, my mission statement. Every day I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit of myself first and then others. Every day I want to inspire the human spirit of myself, nurture and inspire the human spirit of myself first and then for others. And the reason why I sell first, sell first, if I'm not okay with me, it's very difficult to help anybody else. And then I have my core values, honesty, fairness, respect for self and others, responsibility, integrity, trust in self and others, caring and love. Those are my eight core values. And then how I do everything, my six Ps, with purpose, passion, persistence, patience, performance, and all about people. That is Howard in 50 words or less. Mm. Everything I do in my life revolves around those three little documents. How did you create those? So if I'm listening in and I say, this sounds awesome. It is amazing. I 100% won my own personal <laughs> mission statement, set of values, whether they end up on peace, however it is that they organize yeah. it. But how did you put it together? How would you coach others that want that? but don't know where to start? Well, the mission statement is not, I want to be rich. The, rich, the mission statement for me is like Jim Collins' BHAG, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's bigger than us, right? And it's always, it's always this giant magnet pulling us towards it. 
And you get up every day, and I look at that every day. And, you know, it has meaning to me and informs my actions and the decisions I make in my life. What nurtures and inspires the human spirit? It's sometimes it's little tiny things like picking up paper off the street. Sometimes it's maybe things like this where you invited me to talk with you and hopefully other people will get something out of it. Sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's uh, uh, somebody calls me and says, I'm having a problem. You know, who knows what it is, but, but it's helping other people is basically what it is. It's serving other people. And so it took me a while. I had my very first mission statement is when I, I wanted to be one of the most well-known and respected uh, leaders in the home furnishings industry. Hmm. Right. And, you know, after a while, I plagiarized this from Starbucks, actually, that my president, <laughs> when we were working on something, I said, that's who I want to be. And that was 35 years ago about, or not quite 35 years ago. My core values came from a book that I got, and it had a list of 300 words that represented human values. And mm. the, the chapter of the book said you got to get it down to eight to 10 core values. There might be 50 or even 100 that in some way might be just describe you in some little way. Mm-hmm. But it's eight to 10 that come hell or high water, this is who you are. Honesty. Come hell or high water, I'm honest. Does it mean I don't tell a white lie? Now and then, yes, I do. I do. Depends on what it is. If my wife asks, does this dress make my butt look big? I'm more than likely to say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you know? but, uh, but, uh, and then my six Ps was just direction to my life. Everything I do in my life has to have a purpose greater than myself. So I, I just, it was, it really asked for a paragraph and I just turned it into some words. Uh, and, uh, and so that's how I did it. You can go online, you know, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits is a great book. If you mm-hmm. want to if you want to look at a roadmap, there's a lot of good stuff in them. He is more disciplined than I would ever have been, but I got a lot out of that. And along the way, there's so many good books on how to help yourself grow as a human being, but you got to write this stuff down. And it takes yeah. time. It is not a, it is not a one-day venture. Mm. It might take you a year to really get it down. And also, Howard, I want your response to this because not only do I agree that it takes time and the world of self-discovery and if you want to zoom out personal transformation, when I found my why and values, it absolutely changed my life and forever. I will never be the same because of that experience. However, I'm not sure that it showed up to the outside world for at least six, nine, 12 months. I, it, yeah. you, you go through a process. A lot of yeah. it starts, it obviously starts within you and then it kind of boils up. And eventually the world sees it through your actions, through your behaviors, yeah. through yeah. your decisions, but it starts on the inside. Here's what but I want to ask. Most of all, you, yeah. you see it. You see it first. When you look mm. at them and you say, how did I do today against this? Right? Because you got to ask yourself that question. You can't just be floating along waiting for other people to answer the question that, hey, he's a, he treats other people with respect and dignity. It's you got to treat yourself with respect and dignity. And that's mm. where it begins. Yeah. And coming back to the point of it takes time. Yeah. Also, I'd love for you to respond to this. I recently wrote a few 
things. It, it all fed into the head, heart, hands equation and better decisions faster. But they asked me, what are the 12 values or what are the, they didn't say 12. They said, what are the values that most closely align to the head? Same question for the heart, same question for the hands. Yeah. And one of the values was growth. And yes. if we're talking personal reinvention and transformation yeah. and self-discovery, I think growth is a value that yeah. encapsulates yeah. a lot of it. But yeah. here was the name of the chapter. And I'd love for you to respond to this. There is no finish line. That's true. There is no finish line. If you're waiting, I used to think when I got to be, I'm 78 years old. I used to think when I got in my 70s, the answers would be clear that what I needed to know about life, would I would have discovered. Uh-uh. It's endless. And mm-hmm. I, I learn as much, I'm learning as much today as I was learning before. I don't get, I don't get to put it in action like I used to, except I put it more in action with myself. But, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's an endless journey. The journey to fulfillment is an endless journey. Amen. Now, so well said. Speaking of Howard, as we come down the home stretch here for folks that want to absorb more of your thoughts and insights. And I I know you're speaking and you're doing a ton of things. Where can our playmakers find you and follow you? Well, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I post both each day on servant leadership or on leadership. And uh, I've been doing that now for a lot of years. And I have committed to myself to do it, keep doing it till I'm 80. And Mm. uh, then somebody else can do it. But, (laughs) uh, but, so you find me there, but uh, here's my, I always give out my cell phone number and my email address for anybody that wants to contact me for any, whatever reason. It's 206-972-7776. And my email address is my initials, hb at howardbihar.com. I get back to everybody. It may take me a little while, but I will get back to anybody. Howard, A, thank you. That's so awesome. And also so rare. I'm going to ask you something. I'm not sure if a lot of folks ask you this as soon as you uh, give out your contact details, because ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to the former president of Starbucks here, and he was just so gracious with not only his thoughts, but also his accessibility. And I know that's a part of his intermission. But Howard, the question is, why do you give your contact details out? And then if I'm listening in, I'm sure there are some folks that have reached out in the past and maybe it's been able to lead to a transformation of their own. So A, why do you give them out? And B, why should we be reaching out? Because it's more than just picking your brain. There, there, There's a method to the madness. Would love to just dip in for a second. Well, you know, because I always wished when I was growing up that I had somebody to just talk to, right? Uh-huh. I was having a bad day. Could I just call somebody up and have them listen to me? Mm. Right? And so, you know, not everybody has somebody that they feel comfortable with. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to, you know, I don't won't know any people hardly that call or whatever, but I can be in here. And that's all. And most of the time, that's all I am. And if they ask me a question, I'll answer it to the best of my ability. But I just mm. think it's the right thing to do. I'm here to serve. Okay, I'm here to serve. And that's my way of serving. And so, you know, it's sometimes I get overloaded. You know, with Ed yeah. Millett, I ended up like three, four hundred calls or emails. It was <laughs> but, but but I got back to everybody. I eventually got back to everybody. And and yeah. so it was fun. And sometimes it's just somebody that has a personal problem that they just want. Somebody has a business problem. Somebody's you know starting a business or some dealing with an issue. And 
you know, I'm not always qualified to answer. And I will tell somebody I'm not qualified, but here's where I suggest you go to get that answer. I'm not the answer man. You know, I'm the listening man. And Howard, you won't be shocked at all by this, but as I've traveled the globe over, let's call it the past decade or so in a bunch of leadership workshops. And I always ask folks, Think of the greatest leader that you've ever had, any walk of life. It could be a parent, a coach, a mentor. Maybe it is somebody in business. Think of that person right now. And then the follow-up is, what did they do? So I'm looking for the specific action or behavior, the way that person showed up. And no shock, Howard, but 90% of the time, I don't care if it is on foreign ground or domestic ground, public company, private company, baby boomer, millennial, I could slice it or dice it any way you want. And 90% of the time, there is a usual suspect that lands in the top five responses. The first five out of, let's call it 50 that make the board. And you've just said it. So whether you want to take a guess or I'll, I'll shout it out, what do you think that that top five response is? I don't know. Go ahead. Listening. And, and, And here's my hypothesis, Howard. I believe that it is so thought after and so rarely practiced. If the world was filled with great an abundance of empathetic listeners, maybe it doesn't make the top five because now it doesn't feel as special. It would still feel great. But I think it's the rarity, which that's why you and I do what we do. The servant's heart is all about listening and the world needs more of them. It's uh, yeah. You know, I gave you a great example of that. We have a big company here in Seattle called Microsoft. (laughs) Right. And uh, Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates were smart guys, but they did not have a lot of empathy. If somebody brought an idea that they didn't like, they'd call them stupid. I mean, to their face, tell them to get out of their office. So uh, the new guy comes along, takes over, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago now. I don't know, Sasha is his first name, right? He's sending a guy that had been with Microsoft for years. So he takes over. What does he change? He said the number one skill any leader has to have at Microsoft today is empathy. And what does Microsoft do? It goes from a company that was kind of dying on the vine, making a lot of money because they had tremendous cash flow. You know, they had Outlook. They had legacy stuff. And the guy changes it. Now everybody wants to go back to work for Microsoft because they become people-centric. Yep. And and it's and why? Because he listens. And you know, that's the key. I mean, there's no question about it. What makes a marriage work? Listening. Right? What makes parenting work? Listening. Right? But like we talked about, it's all integrated. It's it's life. Yeah, the things that work phenomenally well in business also work phenomenally well in life. You brought up earlier how, whether in a work setting or a personal setting, trust more important than love. And the best way, one of the best ways to build trust and even accelerate it is to just be a world-class listener and listen with empathy using your Microsoft example. Howard, this has been absolutely uh, just an impeccable experience. Closing piece of advice for our entire playmaker community live a life of intention if you don't know where you're going any path will get you there spend the time necessary to figure out what it is you want out of your life what you want what kinds of things you like to do you know and write it down you know set goals for yourself you know you don't achieve everything you write down it's okay 
right? But have a plan for your life. Have a plan for your family. Have a plan for your marriage, right? That you work on together with your spouse, right? And, you know, lead a life of intention, but write it down. Write down your values, write down your mission statement, and, and write down your plan. And then you can write it all in pencil. You can erase anything anytime you want. Phenomenal advice. Yeah. I know, Howard, that, that's mic drop worthy right there. And I want to especially highlight not only everything you just said, but the fact that it's okay that it's in pencil. Now, intention means put it in dark pencil, have conviction, yeah. Yeah, commit conviction. to it, but you yeah. can still erase. Yeah. Even if it's a smudge, you can erase yeah. dark pencil. Goals aren't a trap. They're a guideline. They're guideposts. And you keep driving towards them. And right, persistence pays in life. Yeah. yeah, persistence, a lesson that you learned from Howard Schultz. And yeah. this all connects so phenomenally together. So Howard, you already gave out your details from the bottom of our heart. Know that you have you have served in an amazing capacity today. You have lived your mission and all of your peas shine through today. So on behalf of all Playmakers, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310 310- Five six four seven eight five seven. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.